player in a one-night stand called life. When I die, there'll be another one to make the music right. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, and Colin is really sucking up. He's playing all the Wickstrom and Dobrit music. We love that, Colin. You get extra points for that. <laughs> but once again, that's a that's off. Uh, that's actually our newest single release that's out there. So just search Wickstrom and Dobrit on online, both in streaming and on our social media, and you can listen to all our songs. Let's go to the phones now. Joining us, one of our longest and most consistent contributors, Mr. Chad Lachance. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you this morning? You know, I'm doing great. I have. I want some run something by. I know you want to talk about a different. I think special fish that's available in Colorado, and I think it'll be great. But we had a texter. Um, we had a little mix up in our connection. We we're talking getting ready for archery season, and he texted in and said. Uh, how do you get close enough to a pronghorn to take one in archery? I can never get closer than 200 yards. Well, 200 yards would be stretching it with a with an archery tag. I'll have to admit that. I wouldn't take that shot. But there are ways, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but you're also as an avid hunter as you are an angler. And when you're hunting pronghorn, no matter how you're hunting them, you know, there's decoys and blinds. There's using uh some people I know have a fake cow they get behind that gives them shelter. It's more about having them come to you than trying to spot and stalk them, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I have hunted uh, antelope or uh, pronghorn, more correctly, uh, with archery equipment and, and rifles. And uh, I prefer rifles <laughs> because they're tasty. But at the end of the day, um, I have tried both spot and stock and been successful at that. The key there is a lot of terrain. You need to, you need to hunt an area that's got the terrain that's set up for that, meaning you've got some ups and downs. If you're hunting stuff that's really flat, that's not going to work. You won't even be able to sneak through the brush, in my opinion, or the sage. They're very good at that. But if you've got some 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 terrain, some structure to work with, you can stock them. Uh, blinds, for sure, very effective. Uh, if you've got the patience for it, antelope season tends to be hot, so most guys will set that blind up on a water hole. But historically, I've also seen it work on a hole in a fence because antelope don't like fences. And so uh, you can set blinds up on any sort of a pinch point that will funnel them through. And then the third one, you did mention the decoy. Having done that as well, I probably would not do that for um, bucks, buck antelope. And the reason is this. When I have tried decoying before, every doe that sees that decoy is going to come to it. And the buck's going to stand out there 250, 300 yards out there and watch to see what happens. And then you got all those does standing on top of you looking at you and you can't move. So I would probably, if I was using a decoy, I am not a fan of using an antelope decoy. That seems like a good way to get shot. So a cow is the better one. When I did that, we've, we've drawn every doe antelope in the region. So it's a great way to shoot does, though. So that's my two cents, by the way. Pronghorns are my favorite game animals to eat. So I will be hunting them this October. And I will talk to Nate Zielinski. I know he's harvested some with a bow, and we'll try to give you a little more information, uh, listener, next week, too. Or I'll have Karen get a hold of Nate and see if he can include it. But I knew you'd have some to put in. I wanted to put some in. I'm not going to kid anybody and tell you that getting a pronghorn with archery is easy, but it's a, it's a worthwhile hunt that can be rewarding. Let's talk a little bit about fishing now. You want to talk about a fish that you and I have chased through the northern arctic but it's also a fish that a lot of people don't even realize 
we have right here in Colorado, and it really offers a unique experience, and it's a pretty uh, agreeable fish. It, you know, they're they're not that hard to catch. No, yeah, we're going to talk about grayling. Every time I post something about grayling, I get all kinds of comments about, oh, it's a bucket list, it's a bucket list. Well, within a couple hours of Denver, you can fulfill your bucket list pretty easy. The two places I wanted to talk about for grayling are at Joe Wright uh, up on the top of Cameron Pass and then Pearl Lake up by Steamboat, up by uh, up by uh, Steamboat Lake State Park up there. Pearl Lake and, and Joe Wright both have big numbers of grayling in them. And as you pointed out, they can be very willing fish. Um, my, my biggest thing with grayling, if you want to catch grayling, they are extremely observant. And they live in crystal clear water for the most part, maybe a little tannin in it, but that's it. And tannin is what makes it look like iced tea. Uh, but that's about the extent of the discoloration in the water. So with the water being clear and them being very observant fish, even more so in my experience than cutthroat trout, uh, you need light line, you need small presentations, and in some cases, either a complete lack of motion or the, the real speedy motion, one of the two, will get you bites. But the biggest thing for me is line. You've got to be down in the four to six pound test at the most, in my experience, to be consistent, uh, or you just will struggle with them. But once you get, once you get through that, um, then you can get them on a whole variety of presentations, both with a fly rod, and a spinning rod, uh, in my experience, they're easier to get to bite in a lot of cases on small flies. Um, but the spinning rod gives you range. And so when you're talking about fishing one of these lakes, having a little bit of extra range can be really good, particularly if you don't have a boat. And because they're both heavily, both lakes I'm mentioning are heavily treated around the edges and not really an opportunity to wade because they're steep. So the only problem with the fly rod is, is the angles that you've got to work if you don't have a boat. But the spinning rod will give you the range. Little tiny jigs will get it done in a lot of scenarios. Um, we caught them on the little two-inch power swimmer pretty good. I've caught them on uh, a variety of little gulp baits on jig heads as well. And any sort of a little soft uh, marabou, uh, you know, little tiny jig of some sort like that, like a little crappie jig, but on the small end of the spectrum can be really good. And then when it comes to flies, um, really it's dealer's choice. I've caught them on everything from, from little simulators on the surface all the way to little tiny nymphs and everything in between. It would really you know, be dictated by the conditions you're up against and all that. But one thing I will also real clearly say about them is I've watched them be feeding heavily on flies on the surface. And again, the water's clear, you can see them, but you can retrieve something on a spinning rod or, or a fly rod that's completely different than what they're feeding on. In a lot of cases, they'll still turn on it because they're opportunistic feeders, and like I said, they're very curious. But I, at one point, I want to go back and emphasize that I couldn't agree with you more is small presentations. Their mouth is not very big, and they can be an incredibly frustrating fish as far as you'll get hit, you'll get hit, you'll get hit. Um, I like the small small flies on a bubble when I fish for them that they can suck in, but... Uh, you, you mentioned there's a number of presentations that'll work. Now, up in the Arctic, we caught them on three-inch gulp minnows. We had some grayling that was just beautiful. <laughs> but, but yeah, but they're here, a lot bigger up there, though. Yeah, and but in Colorado, it's a small mouth fish, and it could be very frustrating. That's a, I'm down to a lot of times 18, 20, 22 flies. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I've ever thrown a fly bigger than about a 12 for them. Uh, but I have caught them, like I said, on even even at Joe Wright, where their average fish is maybe, what would you say, maybe 10, 11 inches at the most. 
Uh, they'll still bite a variety of things. And Austin Parr, a mutual friend of ours, tuned me into a really good thing with them that, that he and I both played with together, which is a little tiny blade bait, an eight-ounce blade bait. And that seems like a long ways from anything engraving would bite. But ever since I learned about doing that, it has worked every time I've gone. And, again, it gives you the range. And a blade bait, like a little tiny, like an eight-ounce thin fisher, uh, doing a lift and drop with it, for whatever reason, that seems to, to trigger them really well. And I caught them both at Pearl Lake and at Joe Wright with that same bait, just throwing a little chrome and just keeping it moving, making it go fast, and, uh, and they'll grab it. And like you said, they're famous for bumping stuff and not getting a hold of it. But for whatever reason, they seem to get that little blade bait pretty good. But really, more than anything, it comes down to getting around them, having a really light line, and then playing with stuff to figure out what to bite. Now, when you're fishing that blade bait, I've never used that for grayling, but I would think you're not fishing it traditionally like you would fish a blade bait down deep. So you're keeping it up in the water column and just keeping Correct. it moving? Yep. yep, up in the column, working it in the top, say, three or four feet, which is why it's such a weird thing. But um, but it works really, really well. And, and actually, last time I was at Pearl Lake, which is a beautiful place to fish, by the way, this time of year, which is also why I wanted to talk about that. It's up high elevation. Um, the We caught them really good in, a, in a, I would say, four to eight foot range over deep water. And they just murdered that blade bait. Just as long as I kept that thing moving, they were all over that thing the whole time. So whereas I, I had a lot of stuff that was more rhythmic and less erratic and they wouldn't get it. And I couldn't get them consistently on the fly rod, which I had right there as well, because they were just a little too deep and I wasn't quite set up for that. But if a guy had been set up to fish, you know, six, seven, eight feet deep with his fly rod, he might have caught him really good. But for me that day, the blade bait was better than anything else really high in the water calm. And last time Austin and I actually filmed up at Joe Wright, the only thing we could get bit on was that blade bait. And so it's definitely a viable presentation, even though it's way outside the box. Well, one thing I will say right now, if you're going to fish for these fish, now is the time because the ice just barely goes off those lakes by the end of June and probably later this year. And then it's going to start getting cold and snowy up there in a couple months. So now is the time to be up there. My experience at Joe Wright, I haven't fished Pearl, is that from a float tube, I was very successful with a fly rod. Uh, from the shore, I went to a fly in a bubble. I just needed to get out away from the shore further. I mean, you could see the fish everywhere. I uh, just had to get away from me a little bit when I was on the shore so that I could get some action. But I've had great success at Joe Wright. and It's just a fun fishery, and they're prolific there. You can actually even harvest a few. Yeah, and I've never tried to harvest one. I have no idea uh, what their feed value may or may not be, but there's actually almost over-prolific at Joe Wright to the point where Parks and Wildlife puts some tiger muskies in there to to keep them and the suckers in control, and their average size is getting a little bit bigger up there because of that. Uh, and I agree with you 100%. you got to get away from yourself a little bit on the bank, and that goes back to the water being clear and the fish being very observant. Uh, and a fly in a bubble is a great call, uh, no question about that. And actually that power bait retrieve that I learned from the Europeans would probably work excellent if you're at a place where power bait is legal. It is not at Joe Wright. But, uh, and then as far as locating them, I'm going to do the typical stuff. I'm going to look at the, the inlet, the outlet, and the dam. Uh, is going to be the first three places I'm going to look. And for the record, I've caught them in all three of those places in both Joe Wright and Pearl Lake. So it's pretty straightforward as far as where you're going to go find them. And a lot of scenarios, particularly in early or late in the day, they'll be rising, and that'll be your first clue as to where they are. But don't get hung up as you have to feed them a dry fly because they're pretty good about chasing something down or at least coming and looking at it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've had great luck with just any kind of a green nymph in about an 18, 18 size under a bubble, and I've had great luck. Before we run out of time here, what else, anything else going on? How's horse tooth fishing? It actually came back up a little bit, which is a little bit strange uh, for being August. It dropped a couple weeks ago. It dropped a couple, three feet, two and a half feet. And then immediately now it has turned and come back up of maybe four inches or so in the last couple of days. Um, fishing is not easy. I'm not going to lie to you right now. There's fish scattered all over the place uh, because of the high water. There's still a ton of trees in the water and willow bushes in the water. So you might catch one up against uh, a willow bush somewhere in shallow water. You might be targeting them in open deep water, just depending on what your strength is. But in the last week, I've caught good-sized smallmouth from dirt shallow to, to 25 or 30 feet deep. Uh, the walleye bite's been pretty much non-existent unless you're uh, trolling for the most part. I mean, there's there's been a few fish caught here and there, but nobody that I know of is being consistent with them right now unless they're trolling, particularly late in the evening, and that's because of the smelt population. Uh, the smelt come, they release from the thermocline in the evening, come to the surface, and, uh, and that's when the, uh, that's when the wise will feed on them. There's random rainbows running all over the lake, and you'll stumble into those just with anything fast. If it's small and fast, then you'll get rainbows. Could be anything from a jerkbait to an inline spinner to a spoon to a jig. If it's moving fast, you're going to get some trout. I caught three of them in about 20 minutes on a drop shot the other day, just reeling it in, trying to go to my next presentation. They just grab it. So that's a possibility. Um, but yeah, overall it's not easy right now, but it's, it's definitely doable and the water level's high and it is pretty. So there's that. All right, my friend, we will let you go and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks very much, Terry. Have a great afternoon. You bet. Chad Lachance, Fishful Thinker Television and of course, Fishful Thinker Guide Service and great contributor to this show for many years, even a fill-in host. The very first person that filled in when I was gone. We used to always do it live or sometimes we'd tape it. And if, when we decided we didn't like the tape version, we always wanted the show to be live. He was the very first host that filled in and and let uh, and took over while we were gone. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.